Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hi, this is Mike Thurway, stylistic provocateur and proud Silmarillion heir. Welcome to Silmarillion Seminar number 15, covering Silmarillion chapter 14 of Beleriand and its realms. Listeners, get your compasses ready. This week's episode we've titled On Ash and Slag. We discuss the geographical survey of Beleriand, the barrage of names, why folks bail out on the Silmarillion when reading this chapter, and why readers should press on. Why Angband is not on the map of Beleriand, the fallibility of the Valar, all those door names. The patterns of elvish language revealed in the place names, how many elves live in Beleriand. The dynamic protagonists of Beleriand, Syrian and Galeon. We circle back to the loophole-free oath of Feanor. We recall Treebeard's In the Willowmead song and Tolkien's love of the land described in this chapter. And we close with a discussion on filth and desolation. We discuss the ash and slag theme noted in this chapter and expanded on in the return of the king. Did you know that an entry-level coal power plant worker is called an ash and slag man? Neither did I. Enjoy! Alright, so I trust uh, everybody is uh, excited here to um, get to what is no doubt everybody's favorite chapter. <clears throat> I think... Uh, I think really that's more or less universal, um, the uh, widespread uh, affection that people <laughs> have for Chapter 14 of the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, yeah, um, I think actually, uh, the see, Laura, your comment actually, the question that you posted is the one I would want to start with, uh, because that's exactly the first thing. I mean, I think we need to get that right out on the table at the very beginning of this discussion here. Sure. Yeah, I was, you know, I was reading this chapter, and what what springs to my mind is Leviticus, uh, you know, where where everybody stops in the Old Testament and kind of gives up. I was, this chapter just seems so dry, you know. It's it's just talking about geography, and you know, I just wonder if this is if this is where everybody quits and gives up and says no more. And it makes me wonder why Christopher Tolkien actually even put it in there. It just it, it almost seems more like notes for Tolkien himself to use to keep things straight. Yeah, I mean, it, it is certainly true. First of all, I think it is unquestionably true um, that everybody who makes it past the Valaquenta and gets past the, you know, the chapter with the sundering of the elves, you know, the uh, the one that we talked about at the beginning, the you know, of the of the princes of the Noldor. Um, Everyone who you know who makes it past there, I mean, of of all the people who make it past there, I think a really big percentage uh, lose it here. This is um, this is a, a a chapter which I have often heard people allude to explicitly as the place where they lost it, um, and certainly even if it's just I mean, apart from the dryness of the subject, that is as you say, it's a, it's it's a, it's it's like a geographical survey of Beleriand. Um, Apart from that is, of course, the sheer volume of the names. I mean, people always have a problem with the names in the Silmarillion, and uh, and it's this continual barrage. Uh, I mean, indeed, even in our discussion tonight, I, I feel pretty sure um, that I'm going to be more halting and fumbling than usual because I'm not going to want to mess up names, and I'm sure I'm going to have to be looking up uh, a, a bunch of things here and there because I, you know, I mean, I I I still get uh, you know the seven tributaries of Gellion mixed you know mixed up and stuff like that so um so yeah it's 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 pretty it's pretty bewildering one of the things that i want to do over the course of our conversation tonight is not only um 
basically sort of give, yeah, begin to see some of the things that we can get from this and to think about what the function of this chapter is. Um, but also uh, to, I, I don't know, I mean, but, but rather I, I would like to start off just by sort of reissuing the general sort of caution or advice that I gave at the very beginning of The Silmarillion. That is, you know, my number one piece of advice for new readers of The Silmarillion is don't try to memorize everything. Don't try to keep track of everything. With this, at least, you can keep kind of flipping back and forth with the map, both the map in the middle of the chapter um, in the Houghton Mifflin Trade paperback edition and uh, the map in the front of the book um, so that you can at least be kind of following um, as, as you know, the narrator's voice moves up and down the continent in going through things. Um, but but still, I mean that doesn't that doesn't make it trivial. And you know, Laura, the point that you make about basically the decision that Christopher Tolkien made as editor in putting this in, um, you know, I think on the one hand, I think you're right. I think that if there's going to be a single editorial choice that I would question, I, I mean, I think it would be this. There's very little in this chapter that I think you know we're not going to be able to live with if we don't know. That is, I, th- I, I, I don't think that the majority of readers of the Silmarillion really need this chapter. Um, and I think it is an obstacle for people. Yeah, it, it doesn't really move the story, story uh, forward any. It just is almost like a, a brain dump of, of all these <laughs> place names. And um, it's just it's just kind of hard to slog through. I was listening to it in the car and just thinking, boy, I'm just getting lost, I, you know. Because I didn't have the map to look at, especially. I think I think it helps a lot to to be looking at the map when you're reading this. Yes, definitely, um, definitely. And, and I would say this is also definitely the the chapter in the book which is least um, good for audio listening. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, the the Martin Shaw does a does a does a pretty good job with it, but uh, but anyway, it's um it's it's challenging. Um, uh, it, unless you're really used to the names already. Um, it uh, can be really hard to follow. Um, now, uh, the, the the thing that I would say, the one thing that I would say in defense of, the defense that I would give for the editorial decision to include it is, you know, this is... This is really, I mean, Tolkien loved this stuff. You know, this is, it's not just sort of notes for his own benefit. Um, remember the comment that Tolkien makes in the prologue, or the, the preface, rather, to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings, um, when Tolkien says, it's the, you know, it's the, the famous uh, preface where he talks about applicability versus allegory and all that stuff. Um, but he also talks about the Silmarillion material, um, when saying that he, you know, that he 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 had spent time working on uh, working on the early history of Middle Earth, uh, the First Age material, uh, in other words, the Silmarillion stuff, um, and then he, but he had been told to give up, you know, when the people whose whose opinions he sought, uh, you know, changed his, uh, you know, he he had said that I had little hope that anyone else would be interested in this. And then when the people whose, whose, whose input he sought, um, you know, changed little hope to no hope, he gave it up and returned to the sequel of The Hobbit. And this is his explanation for how he came to write The Lord of the Rings. Um, so in other words, remember, he had given up on the fact that anyone else was going to be interested in this. So, you know, like, what is notes and what is real narrative? I mean, he was writing this for his own benefit, and he clearly loved this stuff. Um, and he spent a lot of time not only 
he spent a lot of time not only um uh, uh you know writing stuff out like this but drawing maps of different kinds you know it's one of the really neat things to see um in the history of middle earth series um you know sort of the evolution of his maps and the way that he was kind of thinking things out he clearly you know this this chapter in some ways uh although you know Although it's not the most scintillating chapter in the book, this is also a very a very Tolkien chapter. I mean, this is the this is the way that he thought. This is the stuff that he liked. Lots and lots of names and his his his, his experimentation and exploration of all of these you know places and the connections with their names and and explanations for how names came to be and all of this stuff. Um, you know, if most readers don't like this, Tolkien loved it. So um, anyway, I I think that that's. Uh, I can certainly, based on that, I can certainly see why Christopher Tolkien did make the decision to include it. Because uh, certainly, I mean, I think I think his dad would have wanted it included. Now, that still doesn't make your observation perfectly valid that the book perhaps might be more readable without it. But anyway, there it is. Um, there were a few uh, pronunciation questions and things that people had um, that I think uh, we should uh, we should get started with. Certain goodness knows there are enough names in here. Um, that uh, we want to make sure that we're clear on things. Um, and uh, one of you, Matt, I think you brought up uh, the the word which looks like region. Um, you know, and I've joked before about how Tolkien tends to give names to places that are really quite simple. You know, uh, that uh, when you translate it, it's you know it translates to something really quite obvious and 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 straightforward. Um, but it's not quite so bad as that. You know, that he's just going to call like I'm, I I think I should call this region. Region. Um, it's not region. It's Regian. It is a hard G. Um, you uh, readers of the Lord of the Rings may remember that you know the area south of Rivendell um, before the the uh, in the Ringo South chapter before the Fellowship of the Ring crosses the Misty Mountains. Uh, they are in the land that was called Eregian, E-R-E, just like Regian with an E in front of it. Um, this is the area of Regian, and the, the, the kingdom of Eregian was built afterwards and named for it in part. Um, but anyway, um, so so yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's, that's a, a, a certainly, I think, the most common mistake of all of these names. Um, and uh, let's see, Elizabeth, you were asking about Tarns and Tors. I love the fact that he uses those two words in, in one sentence. Um, yes, a tarn is a lake and a tor is a, a very tall hill. A tor is usually uh, like an isolated hill uh, with, with, very, with very steep sides. Um, and so the tors on Dorthonian, he says, are higher than, you know, the mountains across the way because Dorthonian is this highland that slants up and up and up until it falls down in, in cliffs and mountains on the, on the far side uh, in what is called Arid Gorgoroth, the, the, the mountains of terror. Um, so yes, there are all these tarns and tors. Uh, those are wonderful old uh, old words, old Anglo-Saxon words. Um, uh, so yes, yes, that's what tarns and tors are. Um, let's see, Mike, I think you had a couple of definitions you were looking for also. Hi, yeah, I just had a question about defining leaguer, L-E-A-G-U-E-R, and also how f- how far is a league, and also where is Angband on the map? Okay, yes, could it... Uh, the let's see the first the the leaguer it means the siege the uh, you know they're they're surrounding and hemming 
um, and hemming in Morgoth and his troops. Um, so they, they have him in leaguer, um, which basically means they are besieging him. They have him surrounded and, and, and hemmed in. Um, so he is soon, still not for a couple chapters, um, but he will soon, um, gosh, when is it? 17? Chapter 17, finally? No, 18? Um, yes, 18. Um, that, that the leaguer uh, is going to be broken. And he's gonna and he's he's gonna break out of it. So, um, but yeah. So that's what that's what leaguer means. A league is usually three miles. I'm actually not positive um, what uh, what measure he's using here. Tolkien, uh, I mean, in his usual systematic way, had um, established a whole system of 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 weights and measures. Um, certainly within the Hobbit framework, but also the Numenorean framework and. Um, uh, so I think, but usually, uh, usually a league is three miles. So I'm going to kind of go with that. And I can't think right off the top of my head of a place where he defines that differently. Um, but normally that's the def, that's the definition of it. Um, and what was your next question after that, Mike? There was leaguer. Oh, Angband. Where, where is Angband? Um, yeah, just north. Uh, I think it is actually really fascinating that Angband doesn't appear on almost any of the maps. I mean, if you look at the maps at the at the at the end of the book, um, if you look at the map in the middle of this chapter, um, if you look at the map at the beginning, um, Angband almost never appears um, in maps of Beleriand, and. Um, you know, I, I think that that's actually very cool. I think that that's, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I would say that that's like necessarily a deliberate choice. I mean, on the one hand, it's not exactly in Beleriand um, because Beleriand, in fact, you'll notice uh, in this chapter at one point, it makes a distinction between Hithlum and Nevrast and Beleriand, that Beleriand is not just the name that's used like for the continent as a whole. Beleriand itself really only starts south of the mountains. So if you look at that map in the middle of the chapter, you've got the uh, the line of mountains that form the southern border of Nevrost and Hithlum, and then you've got the Pass of Sirion um, with Minas Tirith in the middle of it where Orodreth is, is ruling. And then you've got Dorthonian in the mountains there and over to uh, uh, to, to, to Himlad, um, where Mithros and Maglor are, over to the over to the Blue Mountains. So from there, you've got south of there, basically south of that roughly east-west line of mountains is this stretch of land, which is really Beleriand proper, divided into West Beleriand and East Beleriand by the River Syrian. Um, so... Uh, so, so technically, Angband is actually pretty far away from Beleriand itself. But, but again, I think that that there's a there's a there's a. I mean, I'm not sure it's not a, a kind of deliberate exclusion. Um, you know, we're not we're not interested in Angband. We're interested in this is this is the land of the elves. Um, and I think there's there's a there's there's a, a, a kind of a fun angle on the exclusion. He's right above Ardgallan. Um, you know, you've got you've got Dorthonian. The plain of Ardgallan right above it, and we're told that it just goes right up to the gates of Angband, um, and so it's up there. Everybody knows where it is, but but we're not focused on it. It's not on the map. Um, so I think that's I think that's actually that's actually kind of cool, though it does sometimes um, it does seem to sort of uh, confuse people. I think. Um, let's see. Let's go. See now on to sort of some more. Um, some larger questions uh, that people have raised. Let's see, Chris, uh, you wanted to talk about the the Valar and uh, and Angband. 
Well, I guess I don't know that I really don't have much to say about it, but it just seems like one of those uh, things that the Valar aren't, don't seem to be good at tying up loose ends sometimes, <laughs> and uh, I think that's another one where they um, they, they rushed over it in order to attack, to, to attack um, uh, yeah. Autumno. Well, they, on the way home, they probably should have taken care of Angband a little bit more thoroughly, but that's just occurred to me this time when I read it and just thought I'd toss it yeah, out Yeah, no, it's true. I, I, you know, because we are told that it was that it was in their haste. Um, and, you know, in part, I think that we can... Haste yeah, to get there. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that basically, that, that, I mean, it, he, he does seem to imply when he mentions that way back uh, that this was just basically a kind of a sloppy job uh, by the Valar. And I think in part, you can see there that this was this was not the primary focus. I mean, remember when they came and they, they fought Morgoth the first time, Subduing Morgoth was just a means to an end. The end uh, was to 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 secure uh, the continent for the elves and to bring the elves and to and and to you know to clear a path, a safe path for the elves to come over to Valinor. And um, they so I mean that is the complete defeat of Morgoth and ex- and permanent expunging of his evil wasn't their goal. Like that that wasn't what they set out to do, and they didn't do it. Um, now they did achieve the goal that they had, which was to subdue Middle Earth. So that uh, the elves would be safe at first, um, and safe to come over to Valinor. But they, um, but yeah, they they didn't set out to expunge evil, and they didn't succeed in expunging evil. And it does now. now another thing, though, that I would say. Um, it's not that they just like completely overlooked it or anything. Um, they didn't completely destroy it, and uh, and 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 therefore Morgoth is able to to kind of wump it up again pretty quickly when he gets back over there. Remember the reference in the last chapter when Feanor is uh, you know doing his solo attack on Angband uh, right before his death, and um, and the narrator says he knew nothing of you know, of the 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 defense that Morgoth had been able to build in so short a time. Um now of course he had some stuff to work with, but he has been uh he has been active since he's been back. And you know, the thing that I think the parallel that I think that we can see that's interesting to think about here, um, with Angband, um, is is Baradur. You know, I think of the the reference uh, the reference to the to the first destruction of Barad-dûr uh, that is in the War of the Last Alliance um, about how how the you know the, the Dark Tower was thrown down but its foundations remained and then Sauron rebuilds it of course um, you know the Black Tower has been rebuilt and I think that we can see a similar kind of thing here there was a victory the first time but it wasn't a permanent victory. Um, and uh you know so this in other words this is this is a trend that we see um the 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 failure of the last alliance ultimately to solve the problem has uh you know is kind of in good company you know i mean that's um that's 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 a good parallel i hadn't thought about about that yeah i I hadn't either until a couple minutes ago, but, it, but it actually it's really compelling once you start thinking about it. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I, that I think that we can see that, um, you know, and th- though in part, one of the things that, um, one of the things that I think emerges when you think about that parallel more, though, is that, you know, it's not, I mean, we're, we were, you know, saying that it was, it was sort of, you know, shoddy work on the part of the Valar, and, 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 and yeah, it was from a certain perspective, just as, um, you know the victory of the last alliance was only a short term gain and 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 uh um you know it was it was it was only a it was a vain victory um 
though remember that uh, you know Elrond sort of speaks disparagingly of the victory of the last of the last alliance, and then later on corrects himself. Uh, you know, that it was not wholly fruitless. Um, but anyway, so I, I think that he, we had. Go the, ahead. The, uh, I was going to say we, he had the uh, um, complication of the ring of power without without uh, physically taking it from Isildur. Uh, um, it, they couldn't destroy the foundations and stuff like that. It's, I'm nitpicking. I like picking on the Valar because uh, um, they, at some places they show short-sightedness, short-sightedness and uh, not always very impressive. But hey, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that that is, it's an important thing to keep in mind, you know, that the Valar, um, Tolkien was very clear yeah, infallible. exactly. Not infallible at all. They're not infallible, and they're not omniscient. Um, they're not omnipotent, of course, as we can plainly see. Um, and we have all these reminders. They're not omniscient, and they are not infallible. Um, and, you know, this is one of the ways in which Tolkien makes it clear. By now, you know, how many chapters has it been since there's been any reference to Iluvatar? I mean, it, it's it's not... He's not a very uh, a very queer presence already at this point. Um, he's not been brought up very often <laughs> lately. Um, but there's these continual reminders, like that this is not the whole show. You know that the Valar are not uh, are not the, the 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 highest authority here. Um, j- and just in case we have any questions about it, we can see how they kind of keep screwing up. So, um, so though again, I don't want to just dismiss it as screwing up either good comes of it. I mean, this is part of the story. The, the the kind of failure of the Last Alliance, of course, is what sets up... Had Isildur just thrown the ring into the fire then, then what happened later... Um, you know, wouldn't happen. And now, you know, this is this is part of the story. And this is this is what's, you know, now an opportunity for the later story is created um, or, you know, is enabled by this. And therefore, you know, was it wrong? Was it bad that Isildur didn't throw it in the fire? Yeah, it was wrong that he didn't throw it in the fire. But in the end, greater glory comes of it, you know, all the way back to the Ainuindale and what Iluvatar said would happen when people made bad choices and did bad things. So did the Valar screw up in not taking their opportunity to hunt down all the Balrogs and Sauron and everybody and, 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 and make a clean uh, make a clean wash of it? Yes. Did they yes, they messed up in doing that. Did they mess up in letting Melkor go? Yes, they messed up in letting Melkor go. But yet, um although those were mistakes, great glory is going to come of it and these you know these these stories are uh uh you know these stories which will be will be hard bought but well bought um nevertheless uh will you know evil will be good to have been so i think we can still see it as part of the big picture but it's uh um and if they had been more thorough we wouldn't be exactly i mean that's the thing now is that to say that that means that it's that it's best you know no no i mean of course if everything had been blissful and peaceful the whole time that would be better right but um but no exactly um these stories have emerged because of those things and again i think that that's what we you know we can see that as part of this pattern of you know the, of of greater glory and bliss being brought out of uh the suffering caused by people's bad choices so um uh, okay, good, good. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's 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 definitely fair. Um, let's see, um, John. I think you uh, you had a question about you had a a word question also about the the elven element door. I think 
I'll try to answer your question as I as I have it. Um, the word door does mean kingdom or, or land, really. Um, not necessarily kingdom in the sense of like belonging to a particular ruler, but 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 land. It's a fairly general word. Um, remember that this is. Uh, I, I brought this up a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, you can see it, for instance. Uh, you can see it, for instance, in Gondor. Um, the land of the land of stone. So um, here we can see it as well. All of those door names um, all mean land of something or other. Um, even Doriath, which is most of them are hyphenated or or two separate words, um, uh, but uh, um, but Doriath, even though it's written as as one word, is 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 the same thing. Doriath it means the land of the land of the fence, uh, referring to the girdle of Melian. Um, I would say, you know, and and in general, this is one of the things that I would point to as one of the big benefits of this chapter. So here we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try my my sales pitch here, uh, my sales pitch for this chapter. Here's one of the things that I think that we can get from this chapter that's really valuable, and that is if you're interested in the names, if you're interested in the language, do you want a little uh, a little you know layman's introduction to uh, uh, to Cinderin? Well. Here you go. Um, well, and and some Quenya too, but mostly Cinderin. Um, look at the names in these chapters, and and you get so many of them that you can quickly begin to see to see patterns. Dor being a good example. You look around and you're like, look, there's Dor Loman and Dorthonian and Doriath. Um, what is this? What is this element Dor? Because you know Tolkien usually uh, usually puts his words together in a sensible way. Um, you know, always has thought very carefully about how these worlds go. These words go together. So when you um, when you begin to see trends like that. You can you can notice it, and then then the whole thing is very clearly given away when we get to the land of 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 Caranthir. Um on page one twenty four, the last page in the chapter. Um, <laughs> this is the sentence which I think, in some ways, kind of sounds silly, um, but uh, but again, is really useful. Is is sort of a, a a really good place to start. Um, you know, if you're looking for the kind of linguistic key, because often, not always, but often, Tolkien will provide the English translation of the names that you can work with. So if you go to page 124, uh, the end of the second to last paragraph in the chapter, um, I see after the semicolon there, but all the great land between Gelion and the mountains, between Rerir and the river Askar, was called by the Noldor Thargelion, which signifies the land beyond Gelion, or Dor Caranthir, the land of Caranthir. Um, so, I mean, those are two names which are really easy to translate, right? Thargelion. Okay, so the, the you know the place on the other side of the river Gelion is called Thargelion. So we can work out what Thar means. It means you know over there on the other side of Dor Caranthir, the land of Caranthir. Okay, that's pretty simple. That's pretty easy, right? And then you look at um, but then, of course, you can go backwards and apply that around, and you can see what all of these other ones mean. I would recommend to you the index um, in the Houghton Mifflin Trade paperback is excellent. Not only because because not only does it um, does it give 
the uh, you know the the page numbers where the names and stuff appear, but it also very often gives a translation of it. So if you look, just go to the dor the dor entry in the index, uh, which is on page three twenty four, and you can see it gives the translation of most uh, of these of these names. Dorthonian is the land of pines. Doriath, there it is, the land of the fence. Doriath, uh, Dordinen, the silent land. Dordidaloth, land of the shadow of horror. Um, you know, so uh, there it all is. Dorkarinthir. Um, and uh, and also, if you keep going a little bit more to the appendix, elements in Quenya in Sindarin names, this will actually give you more precisely um, in, a, in a much more sort of linguistic form um, what this is. So you can see on page 357, the element door is listed uh, as land, i.e. dry land as opposed to sea, um, and then gives examples of where you can see this, including, of course, Gondor and Mordor, uh, as we were talking about before, Eriador also. Um, so uh um anyway so i you can you can uh you you can see so you can also most of the times that you find a name of anything of a person or or a place um you can pretty much go to this and look up the different parts of it and the the, the different elements um and uh uh and be able to piece together what that name means um again this is Tolkien loved this stuff and uh Tolkien thought about this a lot obviously um so uh so that's always that's always a fun thing to do um see Jack you had a question about elven population well in Getting through this chapter, I spent a lot of time looking at the map. Um, and looking at the map, you can see it's a pretty big landmass by any any measure. And when I, when I was thinking about this, I thought back to the previous chapter when Thingol was um, concerned about all these elven immigrants, all these princes of the West coming over and possibly, you know, displacing his people. And so it made me think about, you know, how many elves are there? And do we ever get a an idea of that or was he just being reactionary uh we don't get any clear sense of the actual population um though if anything you know it doesn't seem like it's very huge um i mean sometimes when we see elven armies in the field it seems like there are quite a lot though even there um the one time that I can remember when an actual number is used, um, and this is skipping forward a little bit, this is in the Near Nithornoidiad, in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, um, uh, so as to avoid spoilers as much as possible, one army emerges which is described as being 10,000 strong, and it's described like it's a massive army of 10,000 people, um, so... That's you know that's the ho you know this this one you know elven host which is which is ten thousand so I I I think you know the armies are being numbered in thousands not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands um, the population as a whole um, can't be that high we know they don't live in general they don't learn they they don't live in 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 mega cities um, you know there are, there are fortresses that they have and they do I mean they do build cities but it's not like um, you know, it's not like we have like the you know massive elven metropolises and stuff, and the land a lot. I mean, a lot of the actual land. I mean, you, you, when you know, Jack, as as you allude to, you know, Thingol's concerns about displacement. We're clearly not talking about displacement in the sense of we're we're going to come and we're going to take all the land, kick you out of the land that you used to live on, um, and we're going to take that land and live for ourselves. There is clearly a lot of open. Uh, open land in Beleriand. Even in this chapter description, we get these, um, 
in these references to these wide swaths of land, um, when we travel around in them in some of the stories, they're not going to see a settlement for, for, you know, hundreds of miles at a time. Um, and, you know, we're told even at the end, um, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, at the end just of the previous chapter... Um, yeah, but the Sindar had the fairer voices and were more skilled in music, uh, and they loved the woods and riversides, but some of the Grey Elves still wandered far and wide without settled abode, and they sang as they went. And so there's there's, there's always this sense of them wandering far and wide without settled abode you know, I, that is in what seems to be fairly empty country. Um, so this so B- Beleriand is obviously not densely settled in any sense of that of that word or of that concept. So so I think when Thingol was talking about, uh, you know, the Noldor coming and taking over, he was concerned about, it seems to be more of an authority question, um, because there's no question that the Noldor are great. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're told the difference um, is so striking between the Sindar, you know, who are Moraquendi and the, uh, and, and the Noldor who are, who are Calaquendi coming over from the Blessed Realm. Um, and we know that in places where the Noldor and Sindar are living together, um, like in Nevrost, for instance, they all take Turgon as their lord. Um, so what we do have is a kind of political takeover of the majority of Beleriand. Um, and um, and that's... That's yeah. Again, it's not like we're gonna kick the gray elves out, and they had cities, and we're gonna we're gonna you know destroy their cities, and we're gonna and we're gonna um you know and we're gonna take over those plots and things. I mean, no, that doesn't really happen. They do seem to be quite peaceably integrated in many places, but but again, I think that um the displacement is a kind of political displacement. Um, and I think he is a little touchy about that. Um, you know, Thingol knows that he is not. Uh, He's not the 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 biggest fish in the pond anymore. There are all these huge, huge fish that have just been that have just come into that have just come into his little pond. Um, now you'll notice that the Noldor still res- all of the people who are referred to as lords among the Sindar um, are still respected. You know, there's there's no place where we see anybody being displaced. Um, that is, you know, we we have Thingol and Doriath, of course, um, but even Círdan at the Havens. Remember, uh, there's that one passage to how um, how the Havens were accepted uh, from the kingdom. You know, at, at Finrod rules that whole stretch of area except for the places around the Falas, um, because he's not going to mess with Círdan. He's allies with Círdan, and you know, he keep if 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 Denethor had lived, um, you know, the, the the then he you know his leadership of the Green Elves would not have been questioned, um, even though the Green Elves are one step below even the Sindar um, in sort of the Elvish pecking order. Um, and the Green Elves are left to themselves. They're not, um, you know, they are not, don't even seem to be ruled over um, by the Noldor. So so I do think that, and we don't see the Noldor being really aggressive in taking, in taking stuff over. What they take over, as they said, basically, uh, at the council, was empty land, you know, land which had been emptied, unfortunately, uh, by the orcs, um, who had been in the midst of wreaking destruction on stuff. So there's room for everybody, but maybe just not room for everybody's ego. Well, yeah, yeah. Who exactly is High King? Thingol's like, hey, I'm king over here, right? I am the ruler of this whole land. You guys are under me. 
And the Noldor's response to that is like, oh, okay, Thingol, you keep telling yourself that, right? A king is he who can hold his own, right? You, 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 weren't, you weren't ruling this place when we got here. The orcs had it completely overrun. Um, so yeah, no, there's definitely some ego issues. And I think that it is important to note from the beginning uh, that there are ego issues on Thingol's side as well as on the Noldor side. It's easier, it's easy to... Be, you know, to be bad-mouthing the sons of Feanor, they've got their issues, Carinthir is clearly a jerk, but Thingol's not doing everything right here either. Uh, and and uh, I mean, of all of them, actually, Círdan seems to be the one who is, uh, who is actually, um, I think, sort of passing, passing with flying colors here. Uh, Thingol, in holding himself aloof, um, is, I think, really... We can see already the first level of problems that are going to be emerging there and that he's going to be a part of. Um, but, uh, but Kirdan, he's, he's doing it right. Um, okay, good, good. Um, let's see. Let's talk about, let's talk about rivers. Matt and Jordan, you each had, uh, things you wanted to talk about, about, uh, about the rivers. Matt, let's start with you. Matt, you had been talking about the, the pronouns, uh, and the way that the rivers are discussed. Um, and I think that that's, um, that's really a good, uh, a good observation. And it was one of the things that really struck me most in reading through, um, in reading through this chapter this time as well. Um, looking at some of the examples that you pointed to, um, Matt, on page 120, when we're talking about the river Syrian, um, what Matt was drawing attention to was, was the personal pronouns, um, that that get used here. Uh, second full paragraph on 120. Now the great and fair country of Beleriand lay on either side of the mighty river Sirion, renowned in song, which rose at Ithal Sirion, and skirted the edge of Ardgalan, ere he plunged through the pass, becoming ever fuller with the streams of the mountains. Thence he flowed south for one hundred and thirty leagues, gathering the waters of many tributaries, until with a mighty flood he reached his many mouths in sandy delta in the Bay of Balar. Um... It's and this is it's not just the pronouns. The fact that Syrian is always referred to as he throughout this, as if he were a person, um, but also the verbs. Um, yes, uh, Brandon is right. We have uh, we have suddenly entered style time and uh, without announcement. Um, the verbs uh, that he, uh, he gathering the waters of many tributaries. Um, uh, and you know he reached his many mouths. You know we have this. It's it's very sort of uh, uh, very personal, very active. What the river Syrian is doing here. Uh, uh, Mike, you wanted to, to chip in. It is style time after all. I would go further and say that the rivers are the most dynamic characters in this chapter. I, I think that's perfectly fair. I mean, even if even just thinking about it from a geographical standpoint. Um, Tolkien spends a lot of time talking about the rivers. The rivers, I, the mountains are important too, but the rivers are definitely the protagonists of Beleriand. I mean, um, it is, it is and, and the way in which he follows them and talks about their courses and, and you know, the comparison, Gellion is like twice as long, but Syrian is much wider. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and the, the, the Narog, which is like the third greatest river, um, I think that uh, you can really see now here stylistically um, where where I think the the sort of the personality of the rivers take us. 
is it's hard for me not to be kind of remembering Olmo here. Um, you know, we've talked about how the Silmarillion has this sort of alpha-centric uh, view on things because these are elven stories of the First Age. Um, you know, here, remember those references to Olmo keeping in touch with people through through all the rivers and the streams and how it's Olmo who's really paying attention to um, to what's going on in, in Middle-earth and he's receiving news from things. You know, there seems to be a... a there seems to be an almost Olmo-centric description of of Beleriand here, um, and I think that that, that it's it was hard for me not to read that as kind of a nod to Olmo on the part of you know so on the part of the fictional elven narrators of this um, that uh, you know that they knew that the rivers are you know in a sense uh, in a sense their 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 lifelines not only in the way that we might normally think of rivers I mean of course settlements. Uh, usually spring up around rivers. Rivers are always very important um, when one is exploring country or one is settling a new region, um, uh, you know, both as barriers for travel and also, uh, uh, you know, as, as you know, sources of, of, of water and therefore facilitating agriculture and everything else. But but here, of course, in this context, with uh, with with the Valar and Olmo, there is a there is a special way in which the rivers are uh, work as a kind of uh, lifeline for the Elven people. So I think that that's uh, uh, that's that's pretty cool. And certainly, the rivers are um, are the most the most dynamic um, the most dynamic things that we see, and and really, I think the the focus of this whole of this whole narrative. Um, so yeah, I think that that's uh, that is definitely pretty cool. Jordan, you had a a question about the seven rivers. It was one of the very few things that struck me in this chapter uh, was that there were seven rivers. Seven is always sort of important in the world, it seems. So there are seven rivers on the east. There are the seven Valar in the west, and soon enough there will be seven stars in the north in the sky. And I was wondering if that was significant some way. Well, I agree with you with the general sense that that seems kind of non-coincidental. Um, but at the same time, I'm not sure that I know exactly what to do with it either. Um, you know, that is what we do, you know, do we see that kind of corresponding directly or, you know, or, or, or what? And I, I'm not really sure. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I guess that's just kind of, kind of where I am with that is... Yeah, yeah, that seems significant, but but I don't know why. I mean, just the kind of the kind of mythic implications, you know, as Brandon is pointing out in the in the text here, you know, things like the seven hills of Rome, um, you know, there there there, are, you know, a lot of things of which there are of, of which there are seven. It is certainly in itself a kind of mythic number, um, but uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I think that. Uh, um, I'm hesitant to make too much of it. That is, I'm I'm hesitant to do you know a full out numerological analysis of this, um, mostly because these seven rivers aren't going to be talked about much. I mean, one of them, the river the river Ascar, is going to be important, um, just because something important is going to happen near there. Uh, that is, you know, there's going to be a battle uh, later on. But but that's kind of accidental. I mean, it's not like that shows that this river and these rivers in general are extremely significant. Um, but uh, anyway, I think that uh, yeah yeah. So I don't want to go too far into it. But it's but it's definitely it's definitely tantalizing at the very least. Um, 
Uh, let's see. Uh, Joe, you had a question about the Sindar and the Noldor, kind of picking up on what we were discussing before. I like throwing in there and then they leave it. But I was wondering if it just somehow related to a Turgon's success later on. I mean, um, the Noldor are great and everything. They're extremely powerful, but I'm not sure exactly how their numbers compare to the Sindar. But then, you know, you get them mingling, and I would assume that later on, Turgon takes a great number of those people with him. And then he has a mixture, so he has, like, I guess you'd say the medium level of elves. And uh, I don't know, I was just, but I still didn't see a really strong connection to anything there. I was just wanting to ask if you could find a connection to, like, something really significant as to why that was in there or if that really leads to something else happening in the story. You mean uh, with with Turgon in particular? You could say that, or anything else if there's really not anything to go on there. No, no, I, I, I do think so. I mean, that's the one place that, that we're told um, where there was the, there was most of the, uh, uh, the, sort of the greatest degree of the mingling of the Noldor and the Sindar there, um, and that they all took, that is, all of the Sindar of that region took, took Turgon for their lord. Um, and I think that so the things that we can see there, conclusions that we can draw from that, I think, or, the, or conclusions suggested by that fact are, first of all, that again, we can see this kind of, it, it is certainly a precedent for this peaceful mingling of the two peoples. Uh, you know, again, Thingol sort of speaks as if he's worried that there's like this takeover, but at the same time, there's, um, there's, it's clearly not, it's clearly not hostile. When the Noldor move in, there's plenty of room for them, so the Sindar don't mind, and we can see at least in many places, um, depending on the, uh, the, the, the attitude and personality of the Noldor in question, uh, the Sindar are perfectly happy to, to to live with them and join themselves to them. And certainly later on, um, when Turgon is going to finish building Gondolin, um, Gondolin is going to be... The Gondolindrim are going to be discussed almost as like a separate, you know, subset of elves almost like a separate people. Um, and I think this is, it's important, it's going to be important for us to remember as we're thinking about the Gondolindrim later on, that they are a mingled people. This is, this is Sindar and Noldor mingled together. Um, and there's not going to be a really clear distinction still made, uh, between them. But I think also the fact that this is Turgon and Turgon is introduced here in this section as Turgon the Wise. And so I think that we can see this in his wisdom. It is certainly, those who are holding themselves aloof, those who are who are separate. Here, I would put the, the opposite the opposite extreme from Turgon bringing everybody together and merging the Sindar and the Noldor into one people under his guidance. That's like at the opposite end of the spectrum from uh, Karanthir pointing and laughing at the dwarves when uh, when he meets them over there. That is, you know, he's got these these other people who live near them now. I mean, you know, Turgon isn't exactly taking dwarves in, but he uh, but but Karanthir, you know, has has, you know, he finds a different group of, you know, indigenous peoples when he arrives. And what he does is distance himself from them and he mocks them um, and he despises them. And, uh, you know, so I think that that's. Now we see he profits from it, nevertheless. But but again, that's that's the opposite end of the spectrum. Karanthir is is by far the 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 you know he is he is the the the, the harshest and the cruelest of the sons of Feanor, um, and also by implication the most foolish uh, to 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 build the kind of community that Turgon is building is obviously it's one of the things that makes him wise or it's rather it's one of the since he is wise that's what he's doing this is a good idea this is how things are supposed to be working um, 
and Karanthir is not doing anybody any favors, himself included. It would have been really interesting to see had either somebody else lived in Dor Karanthir, or had Karanthir been a different kind of guy, what might have happened there? We know later on that there is it is possible to have partnership and community with the elves. Um, and, uh, you know, the interesting thing, Karanthir's nephew... Celebrimbor is going to be the one who's going to who's going to make that happen. Celebrimbor and also Goadriel and Celeborn are going to have that really good relationship with Durin's folk over in Casa Doom, um, uh, from Eregion and also from Lorien. So you know, we know that that kind of partnership between elves and dwarves is possible. And so you know we get this kind of semi glimpse of like that could have happened here, and how might things have been different had that happened. Um, we know that dwarves are generally the allies of the elves. Most of the time, they're going to be working with the elves, with a major exception later on. Um, but yet, they're never they're never going to be really fully integrated. They're never really partners. They're not part of the leaguer, for instance. Um, and again, I, I think that that's a, that's sort of a lost opportunity. So it's interesting, of course, geographically, they're opposite to each other. Uh, 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 Turgon over over on the coast in the west, and Carinthir in the far east. Um, but I think we can really see in this kind of moral spectrum um, how di- how how different they are too. Um, yeah, Dave, go ahead. So. I wonder if um, another interesting thing about this chapter is we see the um, we see the Mandos's curse and the oath of uh, Feanor and his kids um, in action. Because you, you just mentioned, you just point out this, the, the the sort of feeling that you sometimes get when you read through this, thinking like, if only if only people had worked together better and um, uh, and cooperated and and. Carinthir wasn't such a, a haughty guy, and Thingol wasn't so aloof and all that. Uh, and so I wonder if, if part of what we're seeing in this chapter is, is, is the, the curse of Mandos in operation, that, you know, and, and that this is something we've touched on multiple times. On their way out, on their way to Middle-earth, he said, you guys are cursed, but by cursed I mean you cursed yourselves, because you're you're always your 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 major problem is just going to be that you can't get along, you can't trust anyone, you can't cooperate, uh, and you're going to end up defeating yourselves. And that's the sense we get here. We're looking at the way they're setting things up, and like, well, they're uh, beating themselves again. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, and I think that you know this is this is the consequence of the choice that they've made. They've been, they, they've set themselves on this path and they're walking down this path, you know, and, and they're, you know, they, they're unfortunately going to keep at it. And certainly the sons of Feanor are committed to it by taking, uh, I mean, and, you know, we didn't even talk all that much, not as much as we could have, I think of the content of the oath of Feanor, um, the actual oath that they've taken, um, but I mean, you remember the the substance of the oath of Feanor is a fundamentally uh, dividing oath. They have sworn to take vengeance on anybody who tries to keep the Silmaril from them. So I mean, we, we, you know, what they are saying is, you know, our desires, our claims are. Um, are foremost, you know, that, that these things are more important than anything else. Um, the, uh, the, 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 you know, our, our, our love for the Silmarils, our desire for the Silmarils, our right to the Silmarils, our ownership of the Silmarils outranks any kind of friendship, any kind of, um, 
uh, uh, you know, you know, benefits that we might get from community. Everybody, we are willing to throw under the bus or you know come down on ourselves um, for the sake of the Silmarils. And that, so so the Sons of Fanor are really tied to that division versus community uh, trend there. Well, and what's interesting about the oath is is um, if I recall it correctly. They don't even leave it vague. Like, we're, we're going to go after anyone that gets the Somerils. They actually explicitly yeah. list pretty much all the other races, and it includes the Valar, it includes other elves. You know, they don't even they don't even leave it vague so they can so that later if some elf happens to get a hold of a Somerill, they can say, oh, well, we didn't mean you, we just meant the evil guys, Morgoth. No, they go out of their way to say, if any other elf gets a hold of a Somerill, yep. he's in trouble. If somehow a Valor gets a hold of it, uh, I guess we'll work on that one <laughs> if we come to right. it. But uh, they don't they go out of their way to explicitly list sort of all the various races and peoples that they can imagine oh, at that yeah. point? They they. They they don't want it to be vague. They don't want to leave. Uh, they want to make sure they have no escape clause. Yeah, exactly. No, it's really a loophole free oath. I mean, it's uh, uh, exactly no. That's true. And I think that, um, uh, you know, again, thinking about how the curse, you know, thinking about that in the context of how the curse of Mandos works, um, you know, we could say, well, the curse of Mandos is just the carrying out of the decisions that they made in leaving Valinor, you know, which is going to then manifest itself in the, in the abandonment of Fingolfin and the burning of the ships. Now, at the same time, you can go back one step further and say, well, yeah, but, but the decisions that they made to, left, to leave Valinor, this is already contained in the oath that Feanor has sworn. And then that, uh, but that itself also is merely, uh, you know, the outflowing of the decisions he'd already been making and the path that Fanor was already walking when he was, you know, denying the sight of the Silmarils to other people and that he was forgetting that the light in them was not his own. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all of this sort of comes back to being sort of expressions of the same thing. The oath, of course, is significant because they are tied to it. It actually does have, um, it actually does have uh, compulsion uh, powers. And it's interesting, it's, you know, in a sense, the oath of Fanor binds them in in ways that the curse of Mandos doesn't bind them in the same way, um, uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the the to some extent, the curse of Mandos seems to be more of a prediction than uh, uh, than a than an actual compulsion. Um, Laura, go ahead. Yeah the the other interesting thing about this chapter is uh, we're sort of in the the lull the calm before the storm and and what is it like 500 years or something like that it, it's a long t- period of time where not a lot is really talked about um and uh and the oath uh the oath of fanor sort of uh takes a back seat nobody really seems to be thinking about going after the silmarils for for quite a long time yeah no i agree and um I actually think it's kind of interesting the way that that lull is reflected in these chapters. Um, that is after the last chapter, which was so eventful, we get this chapter in which 
uh, you know, in which, uh, uh, needless to say, not all that much happens, not very action-filled. Um, and then there's going to be several more, which are just sort of setting the stage. And it's you know, it's not until chapter 18 that events are going to start moving forward again. Um, and yeah, I think it is. It is. The, you know, this is the beginning of the longest period of peace, or nearly peace, um, that is that that we're going to see. And I do think the oath of Feanor is kind of interesting here. We have on the. This is a very different strategy from Feanor's himself. You know, uh, you know. Again, to return to that line that I was quoting earlier about you know Feanor knew nothing of the 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 defense that uh, that Morgoth had already made for himself in so short a time at Angband. But even if he had known, he would have he would have attacked it single handedly anyway. Um you can't imagine Feanor being like, Yeah, let's uh let's besiege Morgoth for five hundred years. Let's just like hang out here and we'll keep him in place and that'll be good. But clearly the sons of Feanor are fine with this as a means of fulfilling the vow. I mean, hey, we know where the Silmarils are. They're right over there. Um, but they're not attacking. Um, and in part, this is because Mithros is obviously wiser than uh, than his dad was. And I think that, you know, certainly if um, if willingness to work together and form community instead of division is a sign of wisdom in Turgon, uh, certainly Mithros is wiser than, uh, than, than, than Feanor in this way, because, of course, it's Mithros who not only... Um, it's Mothers who, who who not only facilitates the 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 community, the newfound community, the regained community between the the people of Feanor and the people of Fingolfin and Finarfin, but he abdicates. He is the rightful heir, and you know this is only a comparatively small deal is made of this. Um, when he defers to Fingolfin and says, "No, you are you are the rightful heir," we're told that not all of the sons of Feanor agree, and it's clearly not true. Um, he is obviously the rightful heir. He is the eldest son of the eldest son of Finway. Um, and, you know, it's not like the oldest living male relative, whatever. I mean, it's it, it we will see after this, it will go down in sons. Um, you know, when uh, Fingolfin dies, we don't just look around for the next for the next oldest guy necessarily. So. Um, so, yeah, I think that uh, um, it's it's. It's it's a pretty remarkable thing. Mithros, I think, really deserves a lot of credit. And uh and and the, the to me the number one thing, um, the most admirable thing that Mithros does ever is that well not not abdication, but um that, that deferring to, to Fingolfin. That's that's this that's the straight up um that's I think the best uh the the the, the, the clearest illustration of that. Um and uh yeah you know, Jason you're pointing out exactly what I was thinking while I was talking to Turgon does succeed Fingon it doesn't go straight from Fingon to Gilgalad who is Fingon's son um so there is further precedent there but again then why after Turgon does it go to Gilgalad um there are still there are still others um that, that that is that there, there are still others available. I mean, if we're going to next oldest, if we're going to sort of next most senior, I mean, why not? Why not? Why not? Mithros when Fingon dies, Mithros is still alive. Um, when both Fingolfin and Fingon are dead, um, you know, it's you know, of course, I mean, he's the son of Fanor, and there's still, although that those wounds are healed, that that still might be sort of a big stretch. But anyway, I mean, I, I think it's. Um, 
it's uh, it's the the line of succession of the of the Noldor kings. I think is not it's not necessarily perfectly clear, um, but what is really clearly emphasized is that Mithros Mithros was clearly the presumptive heir um, of the rulership of the Noldor, and that his action in giving it up to to Fingolfin was an act of self sacrifice and of uh, you know an act of dispossession not only of him but of all of his brothers and their people um so i think that's um that's i think pretty clear um uh good let's see um elizabeth you had a treebeard question I, I was i'm and i'm delighted that you're bringing this up yeah uh, i just wanted to comment one of the, the redeeming qualities of this chapter for me is it gives context to one of my very favorite treebeard moments when he's um sort of chanting to Merry and Pippin about his, I guess, past in um, Valerian, where he's, I don't know, wandering in the woods of Osirian and in uh, Dorthonian, and it's just a great moment, and uh, this this chapter in the Silmarillion really kind of lays all of that out, I guess, geographically, and gives us the context for that. And I like to think of Treebeard kind of wandering around in First Age, you know, Middle Earth or Balerion, and yet we never get any mention of him ever in uh, in any of the Silmarillion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, we will actually see a glimpse of him, not by name, but uh, I, I think that we can be pretty confident that he is going to be there. Um, we we will we, we will briefly meet Ents uh, later on, and again, I think there's a zero percent chance that Treebeard himself isn't there. Um, but yes, yes, we do get uh, this this chapter. Here's another usefulness of this chapter: it helps you to understand uh, uh, um, Treebeard's "In the Willow Meads" song. Um, this is in the Treebeard chapter, uh, chapter four, I believe, of book three, uh, um, in the two towers. So yes, you get lots of our, uh, uh, lots of our, our, our favorite places here. I wandered in summer in the elm woods of Ossirian. Ah, uh, the light and the music in the summer by the seven rivers of Ossir. Um, you've got, you've got Neldoreth. You've got to the pine trees upon the highland of Dorthonian. I climbed in the winter. Um, and he's uh and he's giving the the he's giving the names in different languages too ah the wind and the whiteness and the black branches of winter upon orad nathon um yes yeah I, you know again this is you know when he starts uh, and i walk in ambarona in tauramorna in aldalome in my own land the country of fangorn um he uh 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 tree in some at some moments he's like a he's like a walking linguistic indulgence uh you know as he's always giving things in multiple multiple versions of multiple languages of names and things um but yes uh we can see and and this is you know again another thing that i would just come back to about the function of this chapter and the the point of this chapter certainly from tolkien's perspective treebeard's that glimpse of treebeard wandering through the land and his um treebeard's just pleasure in the countryside you know wandering up and down and in all of the different regions of beleriand you know you've got the the lowlands by the rivers and you've got the highlands of dorthonian and oh the beech forests and oh the elms and uh and the pine trees and uh you know all of these different all of these different regions and treebeard's just and the different pleasures in each you know we have the we're sort of going through the seasons um and the different beauties and the different pleasures of each season and all of these different regions 
and uh, and basically that seems to me that the, the spirit of Treebeard's song there, this you know his his pleasure in remembering um, the beauty of Beleriand is, I think, one of the things that we can hear if we listen in Tolkien's descriptions here as well. Um, you know, this he really loves these places, and and you get these moments where he. Um, uh, often you you get these moments where he will kind of linger and uh, um, uh, and 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 you know d- describe things and and you know and give the names of these places and and I think you can really see the pleasure that he took uh, in the land and the geography. This is why he spent time writing stuff like this. This is why he spent all this time drawing maps um, because he really did seem to love it. Um, Okay, let's see. Uh, one or two other points. Let's see. Uh, John, uh, whose microphone isn't working tonight, um, had a question about the translation of Angband. It's described. Um, it's it is called in what sounds like the English translation of it, Angband, the Hells of Iron. Um, but John rightly points out that the literal translation of that name um, is Iron Prison, and uh, and that's true. And I think there, uh, you know, we can see. One thing that we can see there is a kind of caution. Hey, John, I can hear you. Your microphone's working again. Great. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. All right. I had a little PC troubles tonight working on new <laughs> okay. PC. All right. So, uh, first point, yes. First point I would like to address. Um, I didn't hear your last bit, but I'll move on to my comment about yeah. Engband. Now, we all know that Engband, the translation Tolkien gives us, is the Hells of Iron. It reminds me very much of the Blind Guardian song, Time Stands Still at the Iron Hill, which right. you all know. But if we study the Sindarin Index, we know that Eng means iron and Band means prison. So that the Sindarin translation is iron yep. prison yep. rather than hells of iron. It's not a huge difference, but we do see, well, it, it's obviously there. So I was wondering, I don't think it's a mistake on Christopher Tolkien's part, and I don't think... Um, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien himself intended there to be, uh, you know, some discrepancy. There has to be some, some reason, some mode behind it. I know in earlier drafts in the Book of Lost yeah. Tales, um, Engman was called Angamandi. Yes. And, uh, of course, you know, we, we see it changing over time and, you know, the whole principle. Also, um, I wanted to cover backwards. When you asked me about Dor, in terms of mm-hmm. Dor Loman, Doriath, I thought it might mean, mean uh, kingdom. As in, all, you know, we see it also in Gondor, Ardenord, and, you know, I also noticed similarities. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm rambling on like last time, but um, considering even Ang, as in like Angmar, you know. Yep, and yep. Angmar, uh, Angris. Yep. At times, we have some of the definitions which we are given. Yep. And yet, they don't always hold necessarily exactly true. Maybe due to poetic license. Anyway, it's my treatise on Sindarin names. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, um, I mean, you mentioned poetic license, and that's exactly what I would say. There are certainly times, um, both in the English translations and in the Sindarin names themselves, um, when he's not just being, um, when he's not just being literal, basically, um, when he, when he's also being metaphorical. And I think it's one important caution to remember that we do sometimes get, um, a kind of metaphorical renderings of, um, of the, uh, of the, the, the Sindarin words. Um, so yes, he calls, he calls Angband the hells of iron 
Well, yes, it means iron prison. Um, but of course, one of the things that is going to be the primary, it, it's, its function as a prison is going to be one of the main things that we're going to see. There's almost never, um, there, there's almost never a, uh, 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 going to be an actual assault. There's never going to be a serious assault, uh, upon Angban during this whole time. So its use as a fortress of defense, um, almost never comes up. What it is primarily going to be is a prison. Um, this is where, if you're captured, you're going to be hauled into Angband, um, and you're going to be kept there and usually made to work as a slave and tortured. So, um, so it, it, it's, it is, I mean, and yeah, that's, that is, that is, that is like the elvish hell. Um, there's, uh, I am, okay, I am, tempted to bring it up, and I'm going to give in to temptation, though it may muddy the water somewhat. In the Book of Lost Tales, in the original versions of of the Silmarillion stuff um, from early on, um, one of the constructions that Tolkien had for basically the afterlife stuff, the way the Halls of Mandos worked and everything else, in one place he suggests that Angband itself, that is that, that Morgoth's realm serves as in fact a kind of hell in the sense of like that's where the spirits of bad people go after they die um so in that case it is in in origin in one version i'm i'm giving lots of qualifications for it because this was i think not a very fully fleshed out idea of tolkien's and he abandoned it pretty soon after that but you know it is clear that at at least one point it was in his mind that um the realm of morgoth and the fortress of morgoth would actually be hell itself um or at least a, a version of hell and um and there, of course, we can see the connection with between hell and prison um, as well. Not only just sort of hell as a metaphor uh, for prison and certainly the kind of prison that people are put in there. Um, but another important thing to remember, and this is, I think, a crucial fun thing about Angband. One of the few fun things about Angband, actually. Um, but, one of, but one of the fun things about Angband is that, of course, it is a prison. But ironically, this is a prison for Morgoth. It's not a prison... It's it's not only a prison for other people, it's a prison for Morgoth himself. Just as hell, of course, is not the palace of Satan where human souls are kept. It is Satan's prison um, where he is imprisoned. Um, you know, Milton is, uh, is pretty right about that, d- handles that part pretty well. Um, but anyway, this is... Um, w- w- he, it's it's Morgoth himself who's in prison. He's only ever going to once get out on furlough, and he's not going to enjoy it. Um, so, um, yeah, Jordan's Jordan's main elf is going to see to that. Um, but anyway, so it, it, this is it is it is it is you know his own hell, and we will see this you know coming back to just as the iron crown that he has made for himself uh, as king of the universe is going to be beaten into an iron collar for his neck um so his own fortress his own castle is going to be you know is essentially his own prison as well so um th- uh <laughs> oops i see in the text uh dave is mad at me that's what you were going to say right <laughs> so i stole your comment sorry dave I would like to give full credit to Dave Kale, who was going to say, uh, was it the the prison bit that you were that you were going to say, Dave? Yes, that is correct. 
I was gonna. I thought I was gonna be clever and jump in and say, you know, what's interesting you say about it being a prison because it seems like the main prisoner there is uh, Morgoth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, see, I should let you jump in more quickly. Oh well. Um, but anyway, full, 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 full credit for. Uh... It's all right. I steal other people's points, as Laura <laughs> points out. <laughs> I am also a point. Thief. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see, Mike. You had uh, you wanted to talk about Ashen Slag. Yes. When I read that, I circled that, and I was like, I've I've seen that yes. before. And I would invite others to do what I did, which is uh, I, I went to Google Books and did a quick search of Return of the King, and I searched for Ashen Slag or Ash or Slag, and I'll just say that Tolkien delivers on that theme masterfully in Return of the King, and it's so interesting to read about. Ash and Slag coming through in terms of characters, locations, uh, important battles. It, that that theme, it's a it's a one-off in this chapter where Thangarandrib is described as being made of ash and slag, but that's blown that that's expanded so amazingly in a Return of the King. Most interesting one for me that I had totally blanked on was Denethor uh, and his relationship to the to the, at least the ash part of that phrase. So. There are too many um, points to to go into here, but offline, I would invite anyone who's who who's interested in doing that to just pull it up and read through some of the ash or ash and slag connections in that in that final part of the uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I'm just kind of I was kind of thinking through. Um, yes, yeah, so you got Denethor and his house collapsing into ashes, and you've got uh, Gollum's exclamation right right next to the cracks of doom, ashes. Yeah, yeah, and his his he's talking about what what you will find in Mordor, ashes, ashes, and dust. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris, you wanted to add to this? Well, I don't know how much it adds to anything, but uh, there's a, a modern usage of that. I, I work for a utility company, and one of our old coal-firing power plants, the lowest rung of the entry-level position is an ash and slag person and that's what they do is they shovel the ash and slag out of the uh, out of the uh, furnaces after it's after it's burnt so small i thought that was interesting i heard that term and that's uh, what the, our company used to have when we had that plant <laughs> well there you go there you go the, it, 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 real life and actually you know connecting uh connecting ash and slag in that sense to like that kind of an industrial context um is would be exactly perfect you know that's that's uh, uh one of the ways in which you can see just as just as you know sauron and mordor uh, and as we see morgoth up there in angband you know like ash and slag are two of the primary um primary uh uh you know th- uh, side products of what they do you know they just they they put this uh this 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 terrible stuff out so yes you know it's it's exactly like uh uh very like industrial and, go ahead and actually when in and seriously i went through that facility a couple times and you couldn't envision a better setting for mordor it was old it was dirty and you know you've got stuff burning so it, it, it's the whole place black so a perfect metaphor for for Mor- for mordor or angband also yeah yeah no i think that that's uh um I think that that's really that's really cool, and that's exactly the kind of thing that he was thinking of. Um, uh, you know, it's one of the things that he hated most about industrialization. Um, one thing that I, I on the uh, 
vaguely on the ashen slag topic um I want to go, go to sort of read one last passage, which I think is really cool, on page 118. Uh, that is the, the end of the second full paragraph in the chapter. It's in, in the description of, of, of Ardgallen, the, the, uh, the, the fields that lie between, you know, the plain that lies between Angband and Dorthonian. Before the gates of Angband, filth and desolation spread southward for many miles over the wide plain of Ardgallen. But after the coming of the sun, rich grass arose there, and while Angband was besieged and its gates shut, there were green things, even among the pits and broken rocks before the doors of hell. I love that last sentence. Um, While Angband was besieged and its gates shut, there were green things even among the pits and broken rocks before the doors of hell. Um, And, you know, what you can see here, you have firstly this impulse towards desolation. You know, evil creatures, really evil creatures, are always surrounded by desolation in Tolkien, whether it's Smaug in The Hobbit or Sauron in Mordor um, or Morgoth up here in Angband. You know, you always get this um, this filth and desolation spreading out from them. Um, but what we get here is the sun arising just as you know in the desolation of smaug we get already the hints of a returning to life uh towards the end and then of course the uh uh the, this is the thing of course that frodo picks up on when he's talking to glowen um in you know just before the council of elrond like oh you know bilbo would have been so delighted to 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 hear about the the changes in the desolation of smaug um but then the sun rises. You know, here it's it's very sudden. The sun rises, right? And when the light uh, when the light strikes this stuff, um, grass springs up and flowers. Um, and we find that the seeds that Yavanna has planted, the seeds of life and growth, um, are not destroyed. Uh, and it's such a it's such a great image of this period in the history of Beleriand that you've got the hells of iron with little flowers growing around the gates um, because Morgoth is shut in, uh, and you can see you know this sense in which because of course the sun is one of the things that is besieging him, um, the leaguer. Uh, you know, in part the elves we remember you know remember the discussion of Fingolfin's boast uh, at the end of the previous chapter, you know, that the power of the elves is holding Morgoth in leaguer. Well, no, the power of the Valar is also helping here. He is being besieged by the sun as well. And we can see, uh, you know, the, the growth, the growth that's, uh, that's, that's emerging from this. Um, and, uh, and Mikey, I love the, the, uh, do you want to say aloud the thing that you just typed in the, uh, uh, in the, the main box there? Cause I think it's really great. Sure. Well, gardener that I am, I wrote in my my margin, volcanic soil, because I was thinking of the same description around Mount Doom and sort of illustrating one of the points we've been making, which is you can try and do evil, but it'll all work out for good in the end. And even if you create a huge volcano and, and cover the countryside with volcanic ash, ultimately that will create beautiful, you know, organic volcanic soil and grass and flowers and trees will go there and it'll be the most fertile part of the uh, part of the continent. So no matter how hard you try, it's all going to work out. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And I think that we can see, you know, the, uh, the, again, the seeds of that are already sown and it's such a, it's such a taunting 
of Morgoth. You know, Mr. Like, I am king of the universe here in my bunker sub-basement. Um, and, uh, and you know, there will, you know, there are daisies springing up uh, at his gates as soon as the sun, the sun rises. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's uh, it's just, you know, in your face, Morgoth. Well, good. Uh, I think, uh, does anyone have anything else uh, that they would like to add here tonight? I think we've we've covered we've hit on all the things that I had uh, that I had wanted to hit on. All right, great, um, good. Well, uh, again, thanks for thanks for joining me as usual. Um, we will uh, return to a slightly more eventful chapter next time uh, in the Noldor and Beleriand, um, and uh, certainly. Uh, uh, certainly a few more things will happen, get a little more dialogue than in this chapter. Um, and we'll come back especially to the founding of Gondolin, uh, and the, the visions of, uh, the, the visions of Olmo, uh, which we kind of passed over last time, but I think they'll be, uh, sort of more compellingly relevant even next week. So, all right, great. Well, thanks a lot. And I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening and Godspeed.